Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm George Selgin, the director of Cato's Institute, the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. I'm very pleased to welcome you all uh, to today's Cato Book Forum, the subject of which is the book Borrowed Time, Two Centuries of Booms, Busts, and Bailouts at City by James Freeman and Vern McKinley. Uh, I'd like to uh, begin our uh, discussion today by introducing our panelists, starting with the book's authors. James Friedman, immediately to my left, is uh, assistant editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page and the author of the journal's Best of the Web column and newsletter. Vern McKinley, to his left, is an attorney, financial analyst, policy analyst, and author whose specialty is uh, international central bank uh, operations and deposit insurance systems and, and policies. Christy Ford Chapin is an associate professor of 20th century US political and economic and business history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and also a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins, where she's working on her own book entitled Flexible Finance, Finance Capitalism and the Evolving Culture of Risk. Finally, Gary Stern uh, was president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis from March 1985 all the way through August 2009, which I think is some kind of a record, isn't it, Gary? Second. Second, second longest. He's also the co-author uh, with Ron Feldman of Too Big to Fail, The Hazards of Bank Bailouts, which was published by the Brookings Institution in 2004. Thanks to all of you for, for taking part in, in, in this discussion today. I'm going to start uh, by asking uh, several questions of the panel. And uh, after we're done discussing uh, the book uh, amongst ourselves, then we'll open it up uh, in about 45 minutes to question and answer from the audience, uh, after which we'll, we'll uh, conclude and, and take part in a reception. So I'd like to start, uh, James and Vern, uh, by asking you uh, uh, a perhaps very obvious question, which is, why did you choose to write a book about city? Uh, and in particular, I'd like to know whether that was because you consider city story unique or because you think it illustrates more pervasive problems with our banking system and policies. Well, I, uh, I decided to get involved because uh, Vern said we should write this book. So maybe, uh, maybe Vern should tell us, and then I'll say why I thought he had such a great idea and wanted to pursue it. Fair enough. Thanks, George and uh, Lydia and uh, Kristen and Gary for uh, giving us an opportunity to talk about the book in a lot more detail. Can you speak up a little bit, Vern? I'm not sure if it's your mic or me, but I... Um, but, I mean, the real genesis of the book, I think, was this whole idea of serial bailout, uh, uh, serial bailouts that you have multiple times over and over again. Um, an individual institution, in, in this case City, had five uh, brushes with death over the last hundred years since the Federal Reserve was created. Uh, James was uh, working on editorials on systemic risk eight or nine years ago and we crossed paths and I was working to try to get documents on a lot of those issues and uh, this seemed like a, a pretty good issue for us to, to tackle. Of course, City um, isn't the only one that has come close on this matter. I mean, there's a couple runners up. You've had Chase, uh, Chase, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and its predecessors have had these uh, fits of, fits of uh, instability. Uh, the Bank of America and Continental Illinois, which uh, came together in the early 90s, have their own separate paths back in time where they had instability. Um, but I think one reason to track City was because the lineage is, uh, the lineage back in time is a lot clearer. Uh, you have uh, from about 1812 through the 19... Uh, 1990s, where there wasn't much in the way of 
uh, mergers. It was mostly uh, uh, just organic growth. So it's an easy path to follow, whereas these other institutions, it was a lot more complicated uh, path to kind of unwind everything. And then the last issue I think um, should mention is that um, the stories that, that we found as we dug into city's history uh, were just perfect for James's uh, journalistic storytelling approach. And uh, I think, I mean, that's not the primary reason we went with it, but once we kind of decided that city was the one, um, that was uh, somewhat. That was a bit of an extra bonus for us that uh, there were all these personalities throughout its history that uh, lended themselves to storytelling. And uh, George, just uh, I should thank you as well for uh, for having us, and we we've benefited uh, greatly from your work. And thanks for uh, bringing these uh, esteemed scholars in to talk about it as well. It, it is the classic too big to fail bank. It was the country's largest bank for most of its history, still now one of the largest. And uh, I think what what was uh, really striking about uh, the, the research uh, Vern did was that you have this long period when it's an independent institution when not only is it stable, it's so strong that it actually rescues the government on occasion. It, it becomes a magnet for deposits in time of crisis. And then roughly a century since it's been uh, um, guided, heavily regulated, protected by the Federal Reserve, we've seen these bouts of instability. And I think that's the that's what I think makes it a, a really important case study as we look at the too big to fail problem. James, you anticipated a, a, a question I wanted to ask in pointing out that uh, Citi, uh, which we know is one of the largest banks uh, in the country today, uh, uh, if, if indeed it isn't the largest, I think it is now the largest, is it not? In any event, it's in the top four. Right. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, you mentioned that, in fact, it was also one of the largest way back uh, when it first started getting into trouble and being rescued. This was in the 1920s, if I'm not mistaken. Right, that's right. Uh, but was there, in fact, implicitly at that time, a notion of too big to fail? That is... Can you say that the rescue of City at that time involved discussions of its size, interconnectedness, the sorts of things that are used to rationalize uh, bailouts of large banks uh, in more recent times? Or were the arguments distinctly different for coming to its aid? Uh, we think of uh, too big to fail. I think the, the experts on the panel would probably say the, that term really didn't, uh, wasn't thrown around much till the, the 1980s, perhaps. I, I think. What you do see in that period, though, which is really striking, is how uh, right around the creation of the Federal Reserve, this goes from a model financial institution run by a, uh, I would say, a tough boss. Uh, they called him, uh, similar to a historian at the time, described him as a microbe hunter, James Stillman, poring over the portfolio, uh, looking at every credit uh, uh, asking embarrassing questions of people who wanted to borrow money, very high uh, levels of capital, very liquid bank. Then at the, uh, we have the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, and less than a decade later, after some disastrous overseas investments, they're borrowing heavily from the New York Fed. So, so I don't think too big to fail came into view for a long time. That term certainly wasn't coined, but we see there, I think, the, the real historical transition from a more or less free market in banking to one dominated and controlled uh, much more by, by government. And, uh, and the results uh, have not been, not been entirely positive. And I, I think we maybe want to talk about uh, this uh, what, what this has given us in the more recent uh, period and what uh, federal regulation by banking regulators yielded versus what they call uh, shadow banking, meaning the parts of the financial system they don't control. And so, uh, in, in 1920, uh, you actually had three institutions that were stumbling about that time in New York City. Uh, you had not only City, but you had also had Guarantee Trust and you also had Chase Manhattan. So. 
I mean, I, I think that is definitely worthy of some follow-up research to see if there was any more detail, any coordination between uh, the, the process for propping up all three of them. All three of them got uh, discount window lending in excess of $100 million, which uh, back in those days was, uh, was uh, quite hefty. And that was uh, uh, a big burst from about 1917 to 1920. And a lot of it was centered around New York in the, in the discount window lending, if you look at it over time. I think it's probably worth pointing out uh, uh, that uh, this was a time when plenty of banks were allowed to fail. They were mostly very small. In the 20s, I think something like 5,000 banks failed, and almost as many again in the, in the 30s, if not more, so that uh, presumably size had something to do with it, uh, but I wonder if the New York Fed may also be a little bit special in this story, uh, and I maybe we'll leave that to, uh, to for food for contemplation by our uh, other panelists. I'd like to, 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 to pose a question to Christy next. Uh, uh, in light of your work on uh, attitudes toward risk and their evolution or development in, in uh, 20th century American economic history. How, how do you see Citi's story, as, as Vernon James tell it, uh, uh, fitting into uh, the general pattern of this country's, first of all, its general financial development, but particularly its evolving culture of risk? Is, 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 is that story... Uh, uh, representative of general trends going on in the country, or is it perhaps a source inspiring some of those trends? What, uh, what do you say about that? Well, I think, I think the book does do a good job of showing how um, it's Citibank, particularly at particular people at the head um, who are willing to make bad bets and run with low liquidity and um, not very well capitalized. When I'm looking at... Um, in my research is after World War II, of course, you have the banks are very cowed at this point, having gone through the Great Depression and you know, 20s and 30s, 15,000 banks are gone, they fail. Um, so they're very conservative and careful coming out of World War II. Um, but what I've seen that I was surprised about was because policymakers are very caught up with Keynesianism, they're very interested in pushing consumer credit. And this is when we have the banks changing a lot, too. Uh, and, and this is something that uh, Vernon and James do a good job of showing in the book as well, how the bank changes. It, it used to be a place for the wealthy, the elite. They approach the bank and ask to open an account. Um, but Citibank is actually on the forefront, even before the Great Depression, of moving out to the little people and opening up small accounts. Um, and there is a little bit of lending in the 20s, but that's unusual. What you see after World War II that I, I find so interesting is you start to see attitudes towards risk changing, and partially there's a political story going on there um, with, for example, if you look at home mortgages, I, I think a lot of you are familiar with the FHA and the VA, the federal, federally backed mortgages. The banks were thrilled to get this bailout in the 1930s during the Great Depression from the federal government. They were thrilled to be able to get out and loan again with the guarantee that uh, if the loan went south, they would, they would get back a good portion um, of their capital. But what happened after World War II is almost every single year there was a proposal in Congress to liberalize the terms. Um, let's extend it to, you know, let's, let's go from 15 years to 20 years to, we all know, we're very familiar now with the 30-year mortgage. That was unheard of back then. Let's have less and less down payment. Let's have less and less interest. Well, it's a great deal for the consumer, but this is a problem for banks to put these very long-term, non-liquid um, mortgages on their books. And so what I found is there's this interesting game going on between private actors and the government where the, the, the banks are trying to defeat these liberalizations, but one way they're trying to defeat it is by lending more and saying, see, you know, showing up as if it's a progress report to the committee hearing saying, see, we're doing a good job, we're reaching more um, people, and uh, please don't liberalize these through legislation. And one thing I thought was interesting in the book, too, is you mentioned this, too, with the, uh, um, the lending to foreign governments, uh, particularly lesser developed 
developed countries. And that really got me thinking, I really need to go. And I had thought this before, is go research that piece too, because um, that's a foreign policy story. And, and so is, is, is spreading home ownership. We need to look better than the Soviet Union. It's the Cold War. Um, so you have that really interesting piece of where the United States, we need to be seen. I'm sure this is, you know, their calculations with the Soviets, but also thinking too about what the government is pushing with consumer credit, um, lending. I, I've started looking a little bit into the student loan piece. That's perhaps another bubble uh, that may be that may be bursting at some point. Um, so uh, I found that there, and I also want to say that I, I urge you to purchase the book. It, oh, there's a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting. There's a lot of good information in there, but they do a great job of telling the story, and that's what I was I was very impressed with that. Thanks. If I could just uh, add on that, it is really striking the way the, uh, you saw what in the 1920s, essentially, Citi looked at the American saver and said, uh, well, they bought war bonds. Maybe they would be uh, interested in buying all kinds of bonds, maybe stocks. And, but this, this drive to bring, uh, to democratize credit and banking and, and other financial services was built on the idea that there was a market there that other people weren't capturing, and we can. And, and you're right, you, you look at recent decades, so much of the drives into particular markets are about political motivation and encouragement, whether it's obviously lots of federal activity to drive people into the mortgage market before the last crisis, but also in the 1970s, this was a big part of Citi's lobbying strategy. We go through that in the book where they, they uh, wanted to run with very little leverage and they wanted uh, they, they were getting a lot of credit from politicians for pushing banks to, uh, or pushing loans to uh, less developed countries. It, would see, it was seen as a very positive thing for the world, for American foreign policy, uh, for, uh, for just about everything, uh, really, until, uh, until those loans started to go south. So they were like the, the countrywide of the third world. <laughs> yeah, uh, might say that. Gary, uh, you, wrote, of course, wrote a book about uh, Too Big to Fail, uh, right at the time when it would have been, it should have been most useful <laughs> to make some timely changes in the financial system. But alas, uh, I don't think all of your advice was taken, and at any event, we had some more big bank failures. Uh, you wrote there emphasizing uh, uh, the role of moral hazard and the dangers of bailouts, and and predicting that the regulations in place before the crisis, particularly the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act, wouldn't prevent more too-big-to-fail bailouts. So to, uh, to what extent do you think cities, the city episode during that crisis uh, illustrates the, the, the predictions uh, or bears out the predictions you made in the book? And to what extent do you think it was, in fact, a very unique case. No, no, I don't. I actually don't think there was much unique about it, with perhaps the exception of the magnitudes involved. Uh, but, but other than that, um, you know, I, I think it was predictable given the incentives in place, given the precedents in place. Uh, that's not to say. I mean, I, I could quote you chapter and verse on the virtues of our book, but our book did not try to identify the institutions most likely to fail in the next round, nor did we try to predict exactly when it might happen, basically because we had no idea. Um, but I think we did have some insights that were valuable and unfortunately um, were generally ignored, and that had to do that with the incentives that were in place, some of which have already been discussed, um, which led to mispricing of risk. Risk was priced too low. You know, bankers, um, bankers like, like the rest of us respond to what they observe in the marketplace. They respond to prices. They respond to incentives. Uh, it's not that they want to run the bank into the ground, but on the other hand, if they, look, if they see something that looks like it's priced to be a good deal, they're going to try to take advantage of it. And um, that was, was part of the part of the setup, part of the problem. And it's, it's why, by the way, city, city's history was maybe particularly fraught, and I too enjoyed the book and, and learned a number of interesting things from it. But, you know, if we look back at the crisis, it was not exclusively a city bank. If it had been, it probably would have been a much more uh, uh, 
a lot much less challenging crisis. Um, so what we observed, I think, was problems that pervaded a good chunk of the financial system uh, that were identifiable in advance, that in my judgment could have been at least uh, partially addressed in advance, which would have hopefully led to a less severe crisis from a number of metrics. Uh, but you know, we can't rewrite history. We don't have the counterfactual. We are where we are. Now, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Fiducia and what it tried to do and why you felt that wasn't adequate even at the time just to rein in too big to fail? Well, Fiducia, I, I think the principal part or one of the principal parts in Fiducia aimed at dealing with too big to fail was prompt corrective action, which basically talked about regulatory intervention while financial institutions still had uh, positive capital, positive net worth. Uh, the, the, a big flaw in that was it wasn't market value, it wasn't based on market value accounting, it was based on book value or historic accounting. Uh, and uh, you kind of know in the financial world when you see that, that problems are, problems are looming. Um, now, you know, a lot of people recoil when I talked about, when I talk about mark-to-market accounting for banks. Um, but as we say in Minnesota, it takes a model to beat a model. So if you don't, which means if you don't like mark-to-market accounting, what do you like? Um, and, you know, whatever you might say about mark-to-market accounting, which in, in our proposal at the end of the day was, was part of it, it um, you know, you've got to mark assets to market. And yes, banks have some fairly uh, opaque, obscure assets on the books. But we live in an age where information is much less expensive to gather and analyze than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I don't find it a credible excuse to simply say, well, we can't value these things in any contemporaneous way. I mean, that just can't possibly be true. Can you value them down to the, accurately down to the last dollar? Probably not, but you don't need that level of precision. My follow-up question uh, is really for Gary, but also for the other panelists. Uh, so since the crisis, of course, we've had another round of reforms. We've had Dodd-Frank and, uh, and all that it uh, in involves. So does that do much in the way of preventing or reducing the likelihood of city or any other big bank being uh, rescued in the future? Well, I'll, I'll lead off, but I'll, I'll try to be concise. Um, I'm actually cautiously optimistic about the implications of Dodd-Frank, and in particular about the uh, recovery and resolution plan or living will mandate in Dodd-Frank. Uh, and there, there are several reasons for that. Um, first of all, Dodd-Frank does mandate, and major financial institutions have now produced living wills, that is, how they can be wound down, say, over a weekend, without imposing undue costs on other financial institutions, the financial marketplaces more broadly, or the economy. Uh, the first round of these things, were did, they, didn't, they weren't rubber stamped. I can't testify to the quality per se, but regulators re rejected uh, early submissions. So everybody, as far as I can tell, is taking it seriously. Uh, it's, it's part of the law. It's mandated in Dodd-Frank, and regulators have to sign off on them. And while this isn't the only thing that should be done and, and, should, and must be done, um, it's an important first step because it's preparation for dealing uh, with the next problem or series of problems at large, complex financial institutions. Uh, so I think there's reason for guarded optimism that we are in a better position to deal with at least those kinds of institutions uh, at the next... Uh, at the next uh, point where uh, financial difficulties have arisen. Um, and that's, that's, very, that's very critical. Uh, it's not the end of the story for a number of reasons. I won't dwell on all of it, but I will say, you know, there, there are a couple things. One is uh, the quality of the plans themselves, the, the understanding of uninsured creditors, that they could well lose money. I think a lot more communication should be done about 
the, the, the nature of the change in the regime so that uninsured creditors understand that whatever they make of the past, the position going forward is different. And um, policymakers at the end of the day will have to have confidence in these plans that they can be implemented without imposing the undue costs I, I alluded to. Fellas, uh, what do you have to say based on your reading of, of uh, the history of city? Uh, could this be uh, a device uh, to uh, make it less likely to get bailed out next time it screws up? I think the, the resolution plans are a good step, uh, but we have absolutely no idea how that's going to work in practice. Uh, they haven't been tested. These plans, from what I've heard, are, can be thousands of pages long with uh, dealing with hundreds or thousands of subsidiaries. And uh, it's just going to be interesting when that, uh, when that uh, program is uh, put in place in an actual crisis. As far as uh, the legal infrastructure and, and Dodd-Frank, I mean, I'm just very skeptical. What happens almost every crisis is the, the rule book gets thrown out to a large extent, and you have new legislation. In the, in the last uh, crisis, you had TARP, you had HERA. TARP was uh, mostly used to prop up the big banks, and HERA was to uh, uh, prop up Fannie and, and Freddie, and they're still lingering in, in conservatorship now. And, uh, and you've had that in, in the past. In the 30s, you had the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, uh, new law in the middle of a crisis. So I think whatever the, the legislative uh, framework is right now, I wouldn't say it's completely irrelevant, but um, because when a crisis comes, you'll probably have legislative change, uh, it's, it's certainly not set in stone. May I add a little something to yes, that? Yes, please. Um, because uh, it makes me think, um, you have this image we're talking about in institutions and banks and bailouts, but I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to lose sight of the little guy, right? The consumer, and there's a lot about consumer protection in, in the Dodd-Frank Act. And I'm thinking about a documentary that was made in 1970 called Banks and the Poor, and there's this image of a woman crying because her house is being repossessed by the bank over not a lot of money that's owed. And you have that image, okay, markets, this is where all, and, and you're thinking of Walter Riston, this very well-known, respected, famous banker, head of Citibank, doesn't retire until the 80s. He's a huge proponent of free enterprise. You know, he loves to talk about it, write about it, very vocal about it. And you have this image, but then you, you see the woman's house getting taken away, but yet that never happens to Citibank. They get bailed out time and time again, and it's just, it's, it's a very jarring uh, contrast. Yeah, it really, uh, it was jarring. I think, uh, I think Riston has, a, has a developed, because of the rhetoric, a kind of a very positive reputation among people who like free markets and like free enterprise, and uh, uh, he was, uh, I think, like, a lot of people, he was all for them and, until it was uh, his interest at stake. And then he uh, very much uh, welcomed or encouraged uh, uh, government intervention. And, uh, and I think the, the, the whole premise of, of their uh, strategy, we talked about the Latin American lending, is he's, he's also famous uh, for saying that countries never go bankrupt. And, and he somehow persuaded a lot of people in this town to believe that... Uh, uh, lending to uh, uh, developing countries was as safe as it gets, as safe as uh, uh, lending to the, the, the U.S. Treasury. And obviously, uh, that, that didn't uh, turn out to be the case. But, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the distance between uh, Riston's uh, rhetoric and, uh, and the reality of a city in that period was, uh, was quite large. But we, we do have, there's a, a, a tension here, at least uh, it seems to me, when we think about the good old days, say, before uh, uh, Citibank started having troubles, and it and several other big U.S. banks were famous for being solid. I think it was chemical that was known as old bullion because they had all this gold. And there were other banks that just put their money in securities and no loans, practically, that sort of thing. But these were also, as, as was mentioned, banks that for the most part were dealing with relatively well-to-do wealthy people and not ordinary depositors. And they certainly didn't make loans to regular folk. And, uh, and yes, they didn't make loans to the third world. Or they weren't generous in their mortgages. But 
uh, it seems very, I doubt very many people could imagine going back to that kind of world, though there are certain proponents of reform who might take us there if we were to follow their advice. But how can we have the baby, as it were, of a, of a, of a, uh, a well-banked society, to use the phrase that's now, I think, fairly current, uh, without the bathwater of, of bailouts? Well, I think um, the, the history does tell us that, uh, that there isn't a connection, but a, a, a tight connection between uh, expanding credit to the consumer and crises. Uh, in other words, the, uh, that expansion we were talking about in the 20s of, of uh, city really leading the way on, on bringing uh, lots of people into the financial system who in an earlier era wouldn't have had the means to do that. They really weren't the reason they got into trouble. It was, it was overseas investments. It was not that they, they overdid it uh, with, the, with the American consumers so much. But I, I would also point out, and I, I think this is the constant problem in, in this town especially, is that it is seen as all upside when, when government is encouraging banks to expand credit uh, with the the uh, premise of a bailout if they run into trouble, allowing them to run with very high leverage and to, uh, to make loans to, especially housing has been a problem. But uh, we do have to remember what the, what the cost was to the average person uh, in terms of the, the slow growth that, that really persisted for most of a decade after the last crisis. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the hit to savers of having these rock bottom interest rates engineered by the Fed to uh, to somehow try and conjure growth after the last crisis. So the the uh, the bill will be paid, but uh, often uh, later and for for many years afterwards. Chrissy, do you have uh, any further thoughts on on that? Uh... Um, well, I wasn't going to comment on that, but if you uh, please, anything you would else? like to uh, get um, off your just, uh, just uh, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just, I, I want to underscore again, um, just looking at the history, the inherent fragility of the American financial system. And I think probably a lot of people here in the audience at least know a little bit more about the history of banking than your average American. But I think most people don't realize that compared to Western Europe and Canada, we had an unusually fragile system. Um, you had all these little banks that weren't allowed to branch, so they're tied to one little economy. If the crop doesn't come in that year, then everything goes under. Uh, you couldn't move money around easily, even with the correspondent banking system. Uh, money flows into New York, then gets pulled back out, depending on the season and what's <coughs> needed. Uh, and a lot of it's tied up in call loans and such. But we have it all split up. We have the state banks and we have the federal banks. And in the 30s, we split them between the investment banks and the commercial banks. So you have this just unusually fragmented, uh, very fragile system. And so then when you start to layer some of the things we've been talking about on top of it, some of the, uh, the riskiness uh, and the problems of moral hazard with the understanding that there'll be bailouts, yeah, it's, it's very problematic. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think you make a good point. Christy, I've always thought it was a, the great tragedy of American banking history that uh, we endured uh, unit banking for most of our history, finally got away from it, but only did so when too big to fail was really yes. in the saddle, as it were. Uh, that happened with Conti uh, in the 70s. And, and so... Now, next thing you know, we have the opposite problem of banks that are getting too big and expecting that they must, uh, that they can rely on bailouts as a result. At least that's, uh, that's one way of seeing things. Uh, can, you have, can you have big banks in the end uh, and not have these, this dilemma? Some, there used to be a lot more discussion about breaking up banks that were too big to fail. Uh, that seems to not be happening so much. Gary, do you know what's, uh, well, my, we don't hear much about breaking well, up? Well, one of my predecessors at the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, came out with a proposal to, to shrink the big banks. Uh, it's not a proposal that I personally um, am enthusiastic about. Um, 
you know, it, it's, it's kind of nice to say, well, if they're too big to fail, they're too big. But, but that's a slogan. That doesn't really tell you what you ought to do in a, in a policy sense. Um, and, and besides, I think we all know if we take a step back, it's size alone is not, is not going to tell you what needs to be done. It, it has a lot more to do with complexity and so forth. We shouldn't, I mean, I, I guess I would say we, we shouldn't a, be surprised that there are losses in a market capitalistic economy. I mean, that's, you, you get the upside, you should also get the downside. The problem is, of course, that the downs, uh, people who should have gotten at least a part of the downside didn't get it. And I'm, I alluded earlier to uninsured creditors. If you were an equity holder in city, uh, especially if you were an undiversified equity holder, you lost a lot of money, or in Lehman Brothers, or I mean, your, your net worth, you know, depending on how many shares you had, your net worth took a, took a very big hit. But uninsured creditors, on the other hand, uh, that's a that's a different story, and and that's where that's where too big that's where the rubber hits the road and too big to fail. Um, as I already commented, I think uh, the living will aspects of Dodd Frank have the promise of helping in that regard. Uh, but having said that, I agree. Uh, you know, it it hasn't been tested. Uh, legislation could come along and undermine it in a crisis. Uh, you know, whether that's good or bad remain, would remain to be seen. It's a cost-benefit question. Um, it's not obvious that, uh, uh, all it's, that, that all too big to fail actions are bad. Uh, it all depends on what the cost of not doing it would, would have been. Um, and, it, and, and in a crisis, you know, you don't have the luxury of doing those kinds of calculations at your leisure. <laughs> you, you've you've got to make decisions and we shouldn't be surprised um, that not all decisions made in the midst of a serious crisis, with the benefit of hindsight, we shouldn't be surprised that they all don't look wise or just in some sense. Um, you know, it would be great if policymakers were sufficiently clairvoyant, but, you know, they're not. They're like people like us. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I would say I'm very skeptical of the idea that, uh, that uh, you have uh, plans to break break up the banks. I mean, who's going to do that? It's going to be the, the regulators and the supervisors. They're conflicted. Uh, there's this idea that there's an optimal level or optimal size for an institution, and I, I can't see at all that that's a, a concept. That, that I, I think the directors of these organizations do have some real responsibilities, just to follow up on, on, on Vern's point. I mean, if I'm not a director of any of these SIFIs, but if I were, uh, I would be pressing management really hard about what lines of business does it really make sense to be in, what lines don't, what geographic regions does it make sense to be in, what 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 geographic reasons don't don't make sense, and and all those kinds of questions. I think directors have a have a role to play, and maybe they're doing it. I mean, I I'm not a par, uh, party to those board meetings, but it seems to me that that you know. Given what we've been through, if you're an independent director on those boards, you should be asking some serious questions. So uh, my, my wrap-up question for everybody, I, I think I'd like to throw a little bit of a curveball. It's tempting to ask just for a summing up of the lessons we should draw from Citibank's uh, story. But I'd actually like to particularly ask the authors what would be the wrong lesson to draw from your book? Suppose, what's your, if you had to worry about a reader reading your book and getting the wrong conclusion out of that story, what might that be? And can you warn us against it? Well, I, I mean, I uh, am worried that a supervisor or a regulator, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere, looks at this and says, oh, this is like a, a menu that we can choose from the various ways to bail out institutions. And that's, that's certainly not the how intention. Guide. Yeah, how-to guide of, uh, <laughs> oh, we can do it this way, we can do it through our central bank uh, discount window lending, or we can do it through a capital program, or uh, you know, the, the whole laundry list as you, as you go through. Do you worry that people might read the book and say, Citibank is such a colorful case, so, uh, so unique, these guys have written this book about it, obviously because it stands out, but 
that's just Citibank. We don't really have to worry about other banks. They haven't uh, got these problems. Well, we can't know. And I, I think that's a, uh, I don't know if they get it from our book or be uh, pushed away from this conclusion by our book, but uh, this, this ongoing problem of a lack of transparency, I, I mentioned earlier this term shadow banking, which the Fed and other regulators use to refer to the financial system that they don't regulate is much more uh, transparent. It, it, uh, it was not, uh, as you're going to hear a lot in these 10th anniversary uh, reviews of the crisis, the entire story. Uh, Citibank was uh, overseen by multiple federal banking regulators. There was nothing uh, that was uh, in the shadows and not covered. The entirety of the operation was overseen by bank regulators. And as we look back and we try, whether it's Citi or any other bank, we want to learn the lessons of what worked and what didn't. We really are limited in that way because records of bank examiners are uh, basically withheld from the public. Typically, a uh, FOIA request is denied because it's confidential supervisory information. And then at a, after a few decades, the records are destroyed on a regular schedule that the, the Fed uh, operate. So I, if there's one takeaway from this book, I would hope it would encourage in this town a move toward transparency, at least when it comes to history. We couldn't get records on 1920s lending. Uh, it, we point out in the book, it's easier to get uh, records from the 1860s than it is from the period of the Federal Reserve. This really is indefensible, I believe. And I, I would hope that uh, that, uh, that there would be a recognition of that in this town. Yeah, as a historian, a little piece of me died when I was reading those passages of the book <laughs> about these records, these valuable records being destroyed, and those are our records. <laughs> right. But now we can't access them. It does seem to me that if you can't at least retrospectively look at what happened in these cases, your odds of being able to do better in the future are not uh, uh, as good as they might be. Uh, that uh, raises a quick question I wanted to ask Gary uh, uh, about uh, the uh, too big to fail in the crisis. When you wrote your book, it hadn't extended to uh, investment banks at all. That wasn't something you anticipated. But that raises a final question about the whole role of investment banking in with respect to Citibank, Glass-Steagall, and all that. Uh, I hope that perhaps we could end with a quick discussion of what role, if any, Glass-Steagall or its partial rollback played in Citibank's most recent uh, uh, problem. Well, the, you'll have to ask the Citibank experts. Um, I would simply observe that, you know, uh, the other high-profile cases were Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG, none of whom were commercial banks or did any significant commercial banking business, so far as I know. So I, I personally don't think Glass-Steagall, one way or the other, had played much of a role, but I will defer to people who've looked at it more carefully. As far as what we found uh, in, in our research on the 30s, which was the initiation of Glass-Steagall, I mean, I, I, before I started looking into this, I really thought the history was that there was instability that washed over from the investment banking side to the commercial banking side. Uh, because in those days, City had both already, right? Right. This was before Glass-Steagall. But we found no evidence of that. They got into trouble in the late 20s uh, and early 30s, but it was the international side, Germany, Chile, uh, a number of other countries, and that put them on the brink. They, they got money uh, from the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, similar to what Chase and, and Continental did. But uh, maybe I was just naive going into it or I'd gotten some <laughs> bad information, but there was never really any spillover from the uh, investment bank to the commercial bank. They were worried about it and we found in some of the communication between the examiners and the OCC headquarters uh, that that they were concerned about it. They wanted details on NCC, National City Corp, which was the investment banking affiliate, 
but there, there was really no spillover at all. And, and, and I think that was uh, kind of an urban myth that hopefully we can uh, work to dispel. Same thing uh, in 2008? Well, I would say in, eight, in 2008, you did have problems in the investment bank, but you also had them in the commercial bank. I, I think one of the, the myths of 2008 is people tended to want to blame particular financial instruments, whether a credit default swap or a collateralized debt obligation, and, and different uh, analyses of that crisis have, have tried to uh, often... Uh, to make a point that one uh, instrument being less regulated than another, aha, that was the problem. I, I think you look at it and you look at city, you look at the problem generally. The problem was housing, the problem uh, was widespread. And with, within city, what you see is commercial bank, investment bank, big problems, big losses on housing across the board from the most simple instruments to the most complex. And of the five times that city did get in trouble, Every time there was a, a big, uh, big problem on the commercial bank, the credit side, the, the lending side, um, and, and the uh, investment banking side wasn't the, the core of what, was, what the problem was. Thanks. Uh, we're going to open it up uh, for the last uh, 15 minutes or so, perhaps a little less, to the audience for questions and answers. Uh, please wait for the mic to come to you before you ask your question so that everybody can hear, and say your name and affiliation uh, before making, uh, uh, asking your question. And do finally uh, ask a question rather than make a, a, a spiel or something like that. I'm going to take two questions at a time, one, two, to start with, so that you both have mics ready, and whoever gets the mic first can start. Did you have a question here, sir? Hi. Yes, a question. And, and direct your question to a particular speaker if you if you can. Yeah, I'm Swami Iyer of the Cato Institute. I would like to ask you know, surely you need a better definition of what this word rescue means. In 2008, certainly the depositors of Citibank were rescued, but the share price, which at its peak was I think close to sixty dollars, fell to one dollar at the point of so-called rescue. So, you know, even today it's gone up six times or seven times. It's still about, you lost 90% of your money. So if you know, if I have lost 90 to 99% of my money, would the, is the word rescue appropriate? I mean, you, I think, don't you need to use a different kind of word? The specific question I have is, suppose the bank had been liquidated, would the shareholders have got less money than they actually have? Uh, it's a rescue of uninsured creditors. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rescue uh, of the institution. It's often a rescue of the board. Um, boards often don't want to go through a bankruptcy process. Not, not so much fun for a director. Um, but uh, but it's, it's mainly in terms of, I guess, I defer to the others, but in, in terms of studying the impact, but uh, it's the... It's the creditors who have that belief that, and it was vindicated in 2008, that they will be covered in a crisis. And as far as your mention of a 90% drop, I mean, that's assuming that you sold at the absolute worst possible time at, at the bottom. Um, and I mean, you're right. In most cases, the liquidation uh, scenario, the, the shareholders would be out. But um, the... Uh, the, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, it, I wouldn't make a distinction between shareholders and creditors. I'd make a distinction between insured and uninsured creditors. So if the deposit insurance limit as it was prior to the crisis was $100,000 and you had $50,000 in the bank, you appropriately expected that your $50,000 fully protected and, and you had no concerns and you had no incentive to monitor the bank one way or the other. But if you're a corporate treasurer with $5 million in city, uh, your protections should be 100,000, and then you've got whatever that different, 4.9 4 million at risk, and, but it wasn't really at risk in a too big to fail institution. And, and that's the nub of the problem because corporate treasurers are not fools. They know they're protected. And uh, they, they similarly have no 
incentive to monitor the bank. I mean, the, the point I was trying to make is just the differential treatment of all these institutions. If you compare what happened to Lehman Brothers versus Washington Mutual versus Bear Stearns uh, versus AIG and versus Fannie and Freddie, I mean, it's across the board that there was, uh, some of them made out pretty well, uh, whether it's Bear Stearns or otherwise, and, and Fannie and Freddie on the other end, they, they took a pretty big hit essentially taking all the, the future profits of the institution uh, for you know, six or eight years into the future. So I think that was one of the big issues about uncertainty for the creditors. Everybody got treated differently, and there was no rhyme or reason to how the decision-making was, was uh, being implemented. Uh, hi, Eric Grover with Intrepid Ventures. Uh, my question, I guess, for Vernon and uh, uh, James. America has long had one of the most developed, uh, politicized uh, banking systems in the developed world, um, which may contribute to the, the periodic uh, banking crises and bailouts of politically connected banks. Could you speculate on any paths that you might see to a less politicized banking system, and a system where the market plays a greater role in regulating the banking system? I think I'd love to see politicians just start shrinking the safety net. And I understand that you can't announce that tomorrow the, all the rules have changed, but just an incremental process back toward uh, that model that uh, worked uh, pretty well. We, we uh, enjoyed uh, and benefited from George's work on the, uh, the financial uh, system in the uh, 19th century, um, even while the government was making a lot of mistakes in terms of restricting uh, the money supply and uh, unit banking and the rest of it, you still had uh, uh, banks that were, were free to fail and an uh, economy that was uh, growing, I believe, at 4% uh, or better in real terms for the last three decades of the 19th century. Yeah, during the next crisis, I mean, this, the regulators, whether it's OCC, FDIC, uh, the Fed, have a lot of discretion, and it really is important who's in those positions. Uh, if you have people like uh, Mark Calabria, who was here at Cato for many years, he's now working for Vice uh, President uh, Pence as chief economist. If someone like him ends up in one of these positions and is the decision maker, I've got a lot of confidence. Hester Peirce, who's at SEC, I've got confidence of her, but um, it's, it's really a crapshoot as far as who's going to be in power, who's going to be at the Treasury and the FDIC, the OCC, and the Fed that's going to uh, be making these decisions. So, I mean, I don't think there's any silver bullet before that point in time where we know when the crisis has started and we know the, the lineup of people who's going to be making the decisions. If, if I could interject, uh, because uh, my name was brought up uh, in this <laughs> connection with this question, uh, actually the United States in the 19th century would not be my my recommended okay. ideal system by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it had some virtues compared to today, but it had many, uh, uh, as many uh, problems that, 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 that were distinct. Uh, but the Canadian system had a fine history, both in the 19th century and more recently, showing a great deal more resilience and I think part of the secret is that they avoided the extremes of, uh, of, of uh, unit banking. First of all, they allowed a, a well-developed uh, system uh, to grow with banks that were sizable, but, but uh, without a, uh, with a more, more competitive system and without uh, inviting too big to fail. And they resisted guarantees a lot longer than we did and still do, as far as I can tell. But, uh, uh, but certainly, I, I think that we need to look beyond the U.S. experience to find some good examples of, of institutional arrangements that, uh, that we might benefit from emulating. Yeah, I, I should just uh, say, uh, we did uh, write about a lot of the problems the, with uh, banking in that era, but what you would love to bring back is uh, that, uh, that phenomenon of a banker like James Stillman running City who probably never dreamed that the government would be rescuing him if he ran into trouble. All right, a couple more questions there and there, and I see your hand, and we'll have time, I hope, uh, to, to get to you as well. Uh, hi, um, Tom Gaspard. I, 
I'm uh, local, Potomac, Maryland. But uh, full disclosure, I spent my life at City uh, up until about the year 2000. And um, my question is uh, about, I want to go back to this issue of investment versus commercial bank. And just a, um, um, no long speeches, but a little backdrop. When I got there, Walter Riston was a god, I'll tell you. And uh, I don't know as he thought the government would bail him out, but one, uh, you know, I never got the chance to ask him. But one thing was for sure, um, these places were publicly owned companies and competition was, uh, I, that's, that's all we heard was competition. We wanted to be kings of the hill. I was on the uh, consumer side, but makes no difference. All sides wanted to be kings of the hill, masters of the universe. Um, followed by John Reed, who pushed the consumer side uh, hard. Um, but throughout all of that uh, competitive, competitiveness, um, never a, um, always a customer kind of strategy. When 1999 or 98 uh, um, in your book comes around and Reed having had enormous pressure from the street to get to the investment side of the, you know, to make a mega bank. Uh, the culture changed. It wasn't just a customer strategy nor culture. It was a deal strategy. And so my question is, how much do you think uh, of any and all panelists, the crisis of 08 was a more of an investment deal-based uh, phenomenon in that we had MBSs and and uh, mortgage-backed, uh, you know, credit-backed securities, um, insurance. These are not so much, to me, customer-based um, uh, products, but deal-based. An entirely different culture, entirely different set of motivations. Thoughts on that? Uh, we talked in the book about there. there is certainly uh, a a view held by a number of uh, people on Wall Street as well, that the, the problem was a, the Solomon Brothers culture. Once that, uh, that unit of, uh, of travelers uh, was relatively recently added, became uh, married with Citi, then the sort of investment banking deal culture dominated. And the reason I, I have uh, trouble accepting that view is, is, one, as we talked about, you had problems come the crisis across the board, commercial bank as well as the investment bank. Um, but it's also when you look at the, the earlier history, uh, you mentioned uh, Reed, it was very competitive. The, the whole focus on the consumer side was marketing, which, you know, a, a marketing culture, an entrepreneurial culture is wonderful, uh, except sometimes when these institutions are playing with our money, it's maybe not so wonderful. And, and I think one thing we wondered in the book was if you did not have a government backstop, would you have had a CEO who had not come from uh, a background in evaluating credit, did not, uh, did not understand uh, credit risk, and it turns out particularly did not understand credit risks on the commercial lending side of the in the commercial bank, I, I, the the problems that had occurred in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I think make it difficult to say that it was the merger later that that caused everything to go south. And not to mention the fact too that a lot of these exotic instruments are so that they can lend more. So it's it's allowing them to do what they want to do on the consumer side because then you can package it up in an MBS or a CDO and ship it off the books. And I might add that the commercial bank, uh, Citibank, uh, was the uh, candidate for receivership. FDIC, uh, we tried to get some details on the, the, these or some documents related to this, but they seriously wanted to argue that we should talk about putting the, the commercial bank uh, into receivership. There was no, not that we saw any discussion of uh, the need for putting the investment bank side uh, uh, in, in, into, into bankruptcy, the equivalent. We'll have to make one 
last question okay. and quick answer, if we can make it I'm, quick. My name uh, is Peter Gray. Like Tom Gaspard, I'm an ex-City banker. Uh, <laughs> my question to the authors is, were you, did you try to interview any city bankers or ex-city bankers in, when you put your book together? Because a lot of the information you gathered was through secondary sources. James has got a good story on that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, we, did, uh, we did speak to a lot of people, uh, uh, not so many uh, uh, on the record. You see in the book the, uh, what's, uh, what's on the record. But uh, uh, no, a lot of uh, people involved in the crisis, um, I think, uh, still not, uh, not wanting to, to speak so much on the record. I should also point out that uh, this is one uh, issue where the, um, in terms of the, the principles, the uh, CEOs during that period, um, there is a, a very extensive testimony from the uh, aftermath. Uh, some of it obviously very well covered in uh, when uh, hearings were held on Capitol Hill. Uh, other interviews uh, really haven't gotten so much attention, and I think that was uh, one, of the, um, one of the virtues of the book is pointing out some of those uh, interviews that came out of the, the uh, Crisis Inquiry Commission, not that you necessarily would agree or disagree with the conclusions, but I think there is a lot of material there, and we tried to uh, highlight some of it that hadn't gotten much attention. Well, folks, I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, we're a small group, so uh, there will be opportunities for those of you who stay around to perhaps ask some questions directly to our speakers in our uh, reception, which is going to take place uh, in the Winter Garden near, at the front of the building. But uh, before we leave, uh, I hope you'll please uh, join me in thanking, first of all, all of our, our participants for a most informative discussion. Thank you, guys.